you could say I got in on the ground floor. Now, subsequently, it's gone in many different directions, and there's many different resources, and I've trained with you know many different masters and developed my own my own mastery, my own approach. But we're going back, you know, 17 years what it was like when it first started. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Steve Cotter didn't invent kettlebells, but he's one of the main reasons they're so popular today. The founder of the International Kettlebell and Fitness Federation, or IKFF for short, Steve is a martial artist by training, and he was one of the first Americans to bring kettlebell training to the masses. If you've ever swung a kettlebell in a hotel gym or a globo gym, chances are you have Steve to thank, at least in part. Since the early 2000s, Steve has given over 600 seminars, talks, and presentations on kettlebell training and kettlebell sport, and he's one of the world's most in-demand speakers on the topic. That's taken him around the globe many, many times over. On this episode of the Barbend Podcast, Steve gives us the inside scoop on his introduction to kettlebell training, how it meshed so well with his martial arts background, and what inspired him to spread the gospel of the bell. And while Steve has done a lot to help kettlebell culture go mainstream, he also thinks kettlebells were destined for stardom no matter what. That's a really interesting section of our conversation today. We also dive deep into how your mental state impacts training and physical development. Steve believes feeling more present can help you move better, get stronger, and train longer. And he gives some actionable advice on how we can all get more out of our training, no matter the sport of choice. And just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying the Barbend podcast, make sure to leave a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. This helps us stay on track in bringing you the best content possible week after week. And if there's someone you'd absolutely love to hear on a future Barbend podcast episode, let us know in your podcast review. I personally read each and every review, so your suggestions will be seen. Steve Cotter, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been a fan of your work for a while. So first off, how are you doing today? Thank you so much, David. I'm doing great. It's a, it's a blessing to be alive. So <laughs> That's definitely a positive outlook to have. Well, for folks, who, absolutely. For folks who might not be so familiar with your work, and there's a lot of it, and there's been a lot of it over the years, if you wouldn't mind, give us a quick background of your history in sports and maybe how you first came across kettlebell training, which I would argue is, is certainly what you're best known for today. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, well, first and foremost, I'm a martial artist, so everything else is coming through the lens of the martial. And I, I studied martial arts, started very seriously as a boy when I was 12 years old. Back in 1982, I came out to California. And that was my first, uh, really my first profession as well. I taught martial arts for quite a number of years. At that time, it was Chinese Kung Fu. Uh, it was a form of Chinese Kung Fu. So I first came across kettlebell, started seeing promotions for them back in 2001 when they were new to market. And I actually first started using kettlebells in 2002. I was one of the early adapters 
um, you know, when the, when the kettlebell or, or what I would say is the modern kettlebell phenomenon initiated, I was one of the early adapters. And so as soon as I touched the first kettlebell, I immediately felt this is something, you know, I, I, it just related to the martial artist in me, the connection to the ground, the transference of power from the ground upward. And then I went deeper into the kettlebell and I've, I've stayed with the kettlebell ever since been, been teaching, been training and uh, came back to the martial arts again uh, almost two years ago. So now I'm in the Brazilian martial arts with the jujitsu and, you know, so the kettlebell has always supported the, the martial arts, which is my first love and my first identity as an athlete. When people first come across kettlebells and this is, speaking to my own experience as well, it can seem like uh, an elegant or an awkward implement, depending on what you first attempt to use it for. I remember my first time ever handling a kettlebell, trying to press it overhead and thinking, well, this is just, this is shaky. And, and what am I supposed to do here? And I know some people have a, very, have, a, have a very different experience. They pick one up and it feels intuitive. It really depends on what movements you try with it first and what kind of movement background you have. Do you remember the first movements you started working with, with kettlebells when you first encountered them back in, you know, 2001, 2002? Yes. And I agree with you. The movement background has, has a big part of that. Um, yes. I remember very clearly uh, the first time I touched the kettlebell, I didn't have any formal training or any training at all, other than just the catalog of Pavel in back in Vitalik's catalog. So I saw the, saw the photos of, you know, kettlebell movements. So the first kettle, the first movement I did was a swing and immediately felt the, the energy coming from the ground up. And then um, from there I, I did a snatch. Yeah. So I, I remember that very clearly like it was yesterday. And, and immediately I wanted more when I, when I felt that immediately I wanted more, I didn't have my own kettlebells actually what it was. Um, I was still teaching martial arts, uh, part-time, uh, part-time. And one of my students came, came, showed up for the class and he had a couple of kettlebells. So as soon as I, that was the first time I ever tasted them. And then immediately after that, I went and ordered my own and started training at home. Now, what does that progression look like if you're someone who, you know, you have a catalog with static images of some of these movements, there's not a lot of resources. You, you can't really go online and find these great in-depth resources yet in the early 2000s on, on many, really any form of strength training, let alone kettlebells, which were just rising yeah. in popularity. How did you become a student of the kettlebell and of these movement patterns without a lot of those resources? And what did that progression look like your first yeah. few years with them? Yeah, you're right. The, the world has changed and the information flow, the rate of information has changed. So it's very, very different today as compared to, you know, 2002. And, you know, literally I was just intuitively based on, you know, the ad copy talking about the dynamic nature and sort of comparing it in some respects to Olympic weightlifting. Um, I just sort of intuitively did what seemed like the thing to do. Um, as far from there, what I did was my student, and it's really important in terms of, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of history and um, I believe very much in giving credit where credit is due. There's lineage, there's sources. So, um, you know, irrespective of the individual, um, 
the information should be recognized for its origins. And myself, like, you know, like everyone else in the early days, it was Pavel. Pavel was really the first resource uh, in terms of the Western world, in terms of American terms of myself. So what I did initially was I had a DVD of Pavel's first kettlebell DVD, which was the Russian kettlebell challenge. And I literally just followed it in my living room with the TV. It was, you know, sorry, it wasn't a DVD. It was a VHS. <laughs> it was a VHS tape. And I literally was just following uh, the movements, you know, going through the whole video on my own. And I had a very extensive background in movement. I had a very extensive background in martial arts by this time. So it was quite easy for me to, to follow along and get the idea without any hands-on training. That was my first exposure. And I was working with them, you know, on my own uh, for about a year. And, and I started teaching, bring, integrating it into my martial art classes that I was doing on the weekend. And then in 2003, I decided to go to the RKC in Minnesota. And that was, uh, you know, that was the kettlebell certification. The only one existed at that time. So, so that was sort of when I began my journey. I went to the RKC. I went through the course. Uh, Pavel and I immediately connected because of my martial art training. I was able to essentially master those skills and also I had an extensive background in teaching. So I was able to, you know, dem demonstrate myself as a strong leader as well as a strong practitioner. And being an early adapter, that gave me the possibility to, to be sort of one of the early pioneers as it was just starting. You could say I got in on, on the ground floor. Now, subsequently, it's gone in many different directions, and there's many different resources, and I've trained with you know many different masters and developed my own my own mastery, my own approach. But we're going back, you know, 17 years. What it was like when it first started. Now, speaking of your own approach and and your own teaching of mastery uh, with kettlebell and kettlebell sport, uh, the IKFF. How did that come about, and was there a moment when you thought to yourself, well, I need to start an organization to teach my methodology and to really promote my own teachings and, and the way I'm approaching these implements? Yeah, there was, it was, obviously, it's a um, progressive, you know, so there's a series of steps leading to that point, but ultimately, there was a moment, and it really comes down to demand. It really comes down to I was getting more and more frequent requests from different individuals. And, you know, it became apparent to me that there's an interest in my approach. There's an interest in, you know, students that want to learn with me, that want to be certified with me. So it became apparent that it was time for me to start a certification. And I, you know, cultivated the IKFF. That was the name I came up with in the concept and still going after all these years. And, and that, that was, Officially in 2008 is when I launched IKFF. So January of 2008, I did my first IKFF certification, and that was in Hong Kong. And then just very fast out of the gates, you know, so, so step by step, how it got to that point is, as I mentioned, 2003, I went through the RKC. Pavel and I connected. He asked me to come back and be an, an instructor for his program, what they were calling the senior instructor uh, so it was myself and sort of an inner circle of five other people that were the senior instructors working with Pavel to, 
to teach the courses. And after a couple of years, I started seeing and hearing about the kettlebell sport. We would hear stories on the internet, you know, about such and such Russian lifter that was able to do this insane number of reps. It was very intriguing. And I wondered, you know, how are these guys doing this? But there was no resources. There was no YouTube, or if there was, there certainly wasn't kettlebell, uh, you know, at that time on YouTube. And so it was very hard to come by information. Uh, a historic point in the timeline was 2005, myself and seven other Americans, we went to Russia for the 2005 World Championships of Kettlebell Sport, Gated Voice Sport. And that was in Moscow. And, you know, that was eye-opening because there I saw the best lifters in the world in the kettlebell sport. And I realized, man, this this is such a high level and this is not something that I'm learning or, you know, know anything about how do I get to that point? You know, it's the curiosity, like, man, I want to, I want to get to that point. And couldn't figure it out at first. Cause it's like, how, how, how are these guys on my same weight doing, you know, twice or three times the reps that I'm doing where in America at this point, I was already established, establishing myself as one of the strongest lifters, certainly pound for pound. And, you know, so I was already emerging as a leader. So it's kind of like a big fish in a small pond. And then you go into the ocean and you realize, well, I'm not such a big fish, you know. And so initially, after I overcame the shock of realizing I'm not at that level, the second stage was how do I get to the level, you know. And still, there was not a lot of information. So around uh, probably 2006, Valery Fedorenko, he, he's really, you know, when we, when we look at the history of the modern kettlebell, you have in individuals that are significant figures. And, you know, so Pavel certainly being the first as far as creating the market. And then Fedorenko was really the first to teach kettlebell sport. He was the first, you know, high level world champion that, that was starting to teach to the American audience. And, I learned, you know, learned quite a bit from Fedorenko at that stage. Um, continued training, continued teaching. I was doing, starting in, um, backtracking a little bit, in 2004, I, I created my first DVD because there was requests for that. There was interest in that. Pavel was encouraging me, make a DVD. So I created Full Contact Kettlebells, which essentially was combining kettlebells with some martial art concepts, different types of stances, changes of base, and so on, mobility with the kettlebell. And set up, you know, this kind of did what was what was starting. This was in the early stages also of sort of internet meets fitness. And, you know, it hadn't there hadn't been too many people that were actually selling fitness or or promoting fitness as their business on the internet at that time. And so I did what we you know, saw others doing. I set up a website, you know, a two page, a shopping cart, a landing page, uh, started taking orders. Was Orders kept coming in, kept coming in. And every once in a while, someone ordered the DVD. They'd write me, hey, I love your full contact kettlebells. Are you ever out here, say, in Boston doing seminars? You know, so that started uh, 2004. I started doing seminars around the U.S. And so the DVD was really a launching pad that got my work out there 
and attracted individuals that wanted to train with me. That continued over a couple of years. And then uh, 2007, I started getting requests to go international. And so that sort of began, uh, you know, going to UK, going to Spain, going to Singapore, Japan, a lot of different places. And the end of 2007, I got a specific request uh, from, from a colleague in Hong Kong saying, do you offer certifications? Because in Hong Kong, people, they want that certification. You know, that's really, really in vogue in the fitness community at that time. So I didn't have a certification, but I, res I re responded to his email. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's the need was there. So I created it and, um, you know, just did the needful, created the, got the, the, uh, FBN and the business license and, you know, all that set up the website and I identified who was going to be my right hand man. So I reached out to Ken Blackburn at that time and, you know, because he was the best person I had come across of, you know, of the different RKC courses I had been through in the different seminars. He was a guy that really stood out for his combination of skill and personality. And, you know, I knew at the beginning I needed a, I needed a kind of a second me, someone that has, you know, similar skill sets that, you know, that, that I can have a right hand man. And so Ken, you know, Ken got on board with me immediately out of the gate, you know, 2008, I went to Hong Kong in January and then, you know, 2009, uh, Ken and I did a course in Chicago and it just, it was every month, one or two, sometimes three courses. And, you know, um, just took off like a rocket ship. And before you know it, I was traveling around the world and, you know, within a decade teaching more than 60 countries and, you know, bringing kettlebells far and wide. How many courses do you think, do you keep track of how many courses you've taught thus you far? Know, I would have to go through, you know, all my different appointment books, but it was, it would be more than 600 at this point, um, you know, counting not only certifications, seminars, workshops. And then um, in addition, I would say probably about 50 different conferences when we, we talk about, you know, um, things like idea or perform better or Ursa or, you know, all these various trade shows. Um, so yeah, I would say conservative estimate, at least 600 or more. And between 2007 and 2014, I was, I would say, 45 weekends out of the year. Whew. I was wow. you know, traveling, yeah. <laughs> so I was literally, you know, living on airplanes for a lot of that. And uh, in the last few years, I've really condensed it. My, my focus is on more specific areas, and I'm not just literally flying from here to there like I was. You get to have a bit of a, a bit of a home life now relative to what you had for a while. Yeah, a lot, a lot more stability and, you know, life changes, our, our priorities change, our focus changes and our, you know, values can also change. So um, it's still something that I love, but it's no longer the goal to travel and go around the world now that I've done so, you know, many times over. So you were an early pioneer, especially in the Western world, on spreading the philosophy, the training methodology around kettlebells, kettlebell training, adding your own twists, perspective, and, and experience. What are some other factors that you think 
have been important in the growth and popularity of kettlebells in the Western world. Because even 10 years ago, I remember going into weightlifting gyms a decade ago and maybe seeing a, you know one or two kettlebells, but only in specialty gyms. And those tended to be gyms that were run by former Russian weightlifters who had maybe immigrated to the U.S. and 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 were familiar with with kettlebells. Now you go into any gym, you go into any big box gym in the United States, and you're very likely to find a kettlebell set. We have two kettlebell sets here in the barbend office. What factors beyond yourself, the work you've done, and the work that people like Pavel have done? have factored into that growth in the Western world? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's definitely uh, multiple. Um, certainly personality can drive for a period of time, but I don't put, you know, I don't put it too much on the personality, whether it's, whether it's Pavel, myself, or, or anyone else. Th- those are certainly contributing factors at, at certain stages. However, it's the utility of the tool itself and its inherent value that it offers to the user, that that is the primary factor. Um, you know, so that's, it, it's easy to let the ego or the personality say, oh yeah, it was because of me or, but, but in reality, the kettlebell would be successful even if you take the players out, um, in my opinion, simply because of its efficacy and its utility. So at the end of it, you know, results rule. And that's the most important factor is those who take the time to learn it and use it do get uh, tangible benefits, increases in their fitness and, and so on. Uh, certainly another factor is, is the larger, what I would call the fitness industry. And they were lagging behind and they're still lagging behind, but in terms of the recognition and awareness by the fitness industry that, hey, kettlebells are here to stay. They're not just a, a, a passing fad. So we better get on board. We better start programming. We better start selling. You know, so nowadays, it's, you know, you go into Dick's Sporting Goods, you go into Target, you can buy a kettlebell. Um, you know, so, so those are factors. Now, I'm not speaking about the quality right now. I'm just speaking about the popularity because they, they're two very different things. But um, certainly it, it needs to be recognized that CrossFit has been one of the major driving factors in terms of just the sheer volume of CrossFit gyms and the fact that, uh, CrossFit community, they like to work hard. They like to train. And if you like to work hard and you like to train, then you like kettlebells, <laughs> You know, so those are some of the big factors. And, you know, of course, there are personalities and people that certainly have contributed. There are, uh, you know, YouTube has been a massive uh, facilitator in terms of the sheer volume of people doing kettlebells. So the exposure in general via the Internet is yet another factor. What are some common misconceptions you think that still abound when it comes to kettlebell training, both within the fitness community and maybe outside the fitness community among the general population? You know, that's a good question. Um, Misconceptions? Well, again, I would say um, with the CrossFit example that I just used, there, there has been a lot of misconception created there just because of the polarity at least when, when kettlebells were first introduced through the CrossFit community, it was sort of uh, pigeonholed into it's not really a useful piece of equipment except for this one movement, which was called the American Swing. 
you know, and that's specifically from an article that Greg Glassman wrote back in the CrossFit Journal in probably 2004 or so, you know, called the American swing. And he sort of dismissed how kettlebells are pretty much useless for everything except for this one, you know. And so when I say misconception, if someone is learning uh, perhaps from a CrossFit coach that isn't well-versed in kettlebell and they maybe went through a level one CrossFit and they learned the American swing, um, that would be a misconception from the point of view of a, of a kettlebell specialist because it's not really how a swing is performed mechanically. Um, there are certain limitations in terms of who's using it with regards to the mobility of the shoulder and the thoracic spine. So, uh, you know, from a skilled user looking at someone picking up a kettlebell and just sort of swinging it overhead, we would probably see that as a misconception. Um, so where you're getting your information from, where you're getting your training from can contribute to that. Um, another, you know, otherwise misconception would be uh, things such as if you're viewing it as a, as a strength tool, it certainly is, but it's primarily an endurance tool, you know, so, so the misconception about even the design of the kettlebell, where, where it's now, what's the biggest kettlebell that I can lift for one rep? Um, I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, but it's sort of a misconception of the essence in which a kettlebell is a fixed weight. And so the objective is to increase the number of reps. You know, it, it's not, in other words, a barbell can be loaded. So if your goal is to pick the heaviest kettle, the, you know, the heaviest load that you can do for a single rep and, you know, measure your one rep max, a barbell is simply a superior tool by design and, and just by the fact of its utility that you can add weight. A kettlebell, that's not its best use or really what its intended use is. A kettlebell is something that it's not a max weight, it's sub-max weight. And so now the objective is to do more reps. And therefore, the higher level you get with that and the further down you go, it becomes more and more of an endurance and less and less of a strength. Or more accurately, we'd say power endurance because there is a time component, at least in, in the kettlebell sport. There's a time component where you're doing as many reps as you can in a period of time. So it, it's you know work per unit of time. Um, so those are misconceptions as well. Um, and probably a third misconceptual conception can be that you can't build muscle with kettlebell. You know, that kettlebells is good for, for getting you in shape, but if you want to build muscle, you need to use barbells or dumbbells. That's a misconception because at the end of it, it's, it's a load and your muscles are still going to recognize it as such, even, even though the position is a little bit different. So, um, those are some of the, you know, misconceptions that, that come to mind. Another one would be, and it's not as prevalent as it was a decade ago, but another one would be that, you know, kettlebells are, will hurt you or kettlebells are bad for your back. You know, I've, I've had physicians mention that in the early days when, when no one even knew what kettlebells were. They see a swing. Oh, that's going to hurt your back. So that would be a misconception as well. You use the term, and this is this is throughout your training. It's on your website. It's it's in your social media posts. Mind body exercise protocols. What does that mean to you? 
And what can we, you know, the average lifter at home, someone who's a strength athlete listening into this podcast, what can that mean to them and how can they incorporate that into their own training or movement practice? Thanks for asking that. Uh, It's inseparable. Uh, Ultimately, what it means and what one can gather is that everything is mind. And the body is the vessel or the vehicle with which we express ourselves. And training, and and I don't limit it just to kettlebell, uh, but it certainly applies to kettlebell very well. Whatever physical training that I'm doing, ultimately prior to doing it, I have to make a decision to do it. So the kettlebell doesn't pick itself up. I have to decide to pick it up. And then from there, I decide, okay, I'm going to swing it. And I decide, okay, I'm going to keep swinging it. And now I'm tired and, uh, man, this sucks. And I think I'm going to put it down. But no, I'm going to keep going. That's mind, okay, because um, the mind is the commander and the body obeys. Contrast that with, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pump my bicep or or whatever the target of the body. I'm going to get that pump. And, oh, man, this hurts, and I think I'd rather be doing something else. Okay, that's sort of letting the body dictate and, and that the first signs of discomfort, you decide to, to go a different direction. Um, so it, apl- it applies to who we are and what we do in life because, because to achieve an objective requires focus. It requires a dedication and a firm decision that, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And so you have to work for it in order to achieve it. Um, as, as time goes on, it becomes more and more about the mind and less and less about the body. And, you know, ultimately, uh, you're cultivating your focus, you're strengthening your focus as you're strengthening the body. Another way to look at this is integration. And by that, I mean, if you go, you know, if you go into the big box gyms and it still happens today, but, but certainly, you know, if we go back 20 years ago before there was kettlebells and before there was, you know, CrossFit and sort of the modern conception of what we have for functional training now that didn't, you know, didn't exist two decades ago. And, you know, mostly the gyms were usually the big box gyms, the 24 hour fitness, the Bally, things like that. And it was sort of a bodybuilding sort of uh, culture, if not culture, that was the model that, that people were looking towards. They were looking in the muscle magazines for information and, okay, yeah, I need to be like Arnold and that means fitness. Um, you know, so at that time, you would see a lot of people, for example, standing on the treadmill, watching the TV or reading the newspaper or sitting on an elliptical trainer or a stationary bike reading a magazine you know so that's a perfect illustration of the inverse of mind body that's essentially your body is working but your mind is somewhere completely different there's no focus you know it's almost like you're just burning calories but there's no mindfulness there's no thoughtfulness to what you're actually doing and so so that that would be a a distinction and with with what i do not just with kettlebell, with everything, with martial art, with movement, with as much with day-to-day living presence of mind is to do everything with intention. And so there's a, a clear vision of what you're intending to do, what you're setting out to do. 
And when you apply that to the physical training, it's the integration of the movement with the focus and you have to include the breathing. So mind, body, and breath really, because the breath is the median, which enables the harmony between the mind and the body. So the breath, it's the focus of the mind on the breath and the synchronicity of the breath with the movement that creates the flow. And when we're in flow, we are, we're on top of the wave, we're riding the wave, you know, and that, that's the objective. So uh, you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the conversation about, you know, the movements can be kind of very, a, a very fluid and sort of natural and intuitive, or they can be sort of clunky and sort of uncoordinated or, you know, in so many words, you were describing that. And I agree with that, you know, and, and that's really the difference in, in the movement and the integration of the mind. When there's not mindfulness, it's sort of the body's working, but it's working against itself. There's no clarity in, in what you're trying to do. It's just, hey, I'm working hard and I'm breathing heavy and I'm getting tired, so I must be doing something good. Versus you can do any task that may be intense in terms of its difficulty level, but you do it with a level of clarity. You do it with a level of ease because you are completely committed and you're completely clear on what the objective is. I think those are, I think those are words that any strength athlete who has struggled with presence or maybe hit a rut in training can certainly relate to and, and abide by. I oftentimes find that our plateaus are maybe more mental than I think athletes of any sport, especially when it comes to strength athletics, would like to would like to admit and changing something about your mindset, your approach, something that has really not much to do with your movement patterns as we might interpret them physically. Changing those oftentimes leads to tangible strength gains and progress in the gym and on the platform. So um, something that I, I really love how you're framing that because I think anyone who's ever struggled with anything in strength athletics can relate to the fact that the mind is a, a powerful driver of progress, certainly. Yes, absolutely. And, and where, where I, um, I don't want to say differentiate, but where I go deeper than, than simply a platitude of saying mind-body is everything we're talking about with regards to training. And so the, the level beyond that is how can I take these lessons? How can I take this focus and this integration that I, that I am very comfortable with in the training world, in the physical, and how can I start to apply these principles to other facets of my life? So, you know, I'm, I'm great in the gym or I'm great at kettlebells, but I have an area of my life that is sort of out of balance or, you know, not doing well. So how can I apply these same principles into other facets of life to effectively make a more holistic, well-rounded individual? And, and that's where the training is most valuable. It's not just about, oh, I can bench press the most weight or I have the biggest bicep. And, you know, the, the reason I understand this is because the one constant that we are all um, subjected to is aging. And at some point in time, we, be, we recognize that the physical body that we, you know, that the, 
you know, this Steve Cotter guy and how I identify the physical body that I operate in and the physical body that you operate in and everyone else for that matter, it gets older. And, you know, so the physical body can get injured. The physical body can, you know, can get sick. The physical body can break. The physical body will age. And at some point in time, the physical body will no longer. <laughs> it'll, it'll return to back into the earth again. So um, if your entire training paradigm is just based upon the physical and the muscle, you will never achieve the ultimate objective. You will always reach a plateau with which you will never surpass. Um, you will reach a physical peak. That's all of us, you know, and, and even at the highest level of sport, it's E to Z to C. So I'll use the example of Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, by most metrics, is considered the greatest basketball player of all time, you know, and certainly in the conversation of one of, one of the two or three greatest of all time. But Michael Jordan isn't Michael Jordan anymore. Like Michael Jordan couldn't sustain that. And he had to stop playing because he was no longer the greatest, right? So the point being is even if you're the strongest, you know, um, you're not going to be the strongest forever if that's how you're measuring strength. There's going to be someone that surpasses you, someone younger, someone healthier, someone faster, someone bigger. You know, so if your self-identity revolves just upon the physical, uh, you're only going to be disappointed even if you achieve the highest level. And so... Um, rather what we, what we may start to diminish in the physical as we get older, you know, I can't jump as high, can't run as fast, don't lift as heavy, this type of thing. Um, we can more than make up for in other areas of character development, what, what some might call wisdom and, you know, and your technique can still improve. And so again, when I, when I said at the beginning, the martial art, everything that I do with the kettlebell, it it's filtered through the lens of the martial artist. And we understand in martial art that technique trumps everything. So, you know, the bigger, stronger, faster guy, he's probably going to win every time in the gym, but he's not necessarily going to win on the mats, you know, um, because if I'm more skillful, you're bigger and stronger and faster, but I'm more skillful, I will still defeat you. And, you know, so the mind has to do with our understanding about things and knowledge is power. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Where can folks follow along most closely with the work that you're doing uh, both in the realm of kettlebell sport and kettlebell training, but also your martial arts practice and the many other interests I know that you uh, push out there on social media and to folks who are interested. Yeah. Um, the best way to, to follow me and to, you know, engage with me is going to be on Instagram. That's my preferred medium. Um, that's where I like to interact with people. You can follow me there. I, I post a lot of different elements of what I'm into, as well as if you reach out to me on message, I'll, I'll get back to you. We can, you know, have a, have a conversation. Uh, that's, just my name, Steve Cotter, IKFF. Perfect. Steve, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs>